another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times And the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't, dictated as almost always from my personal mobile studio. It's my little 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. As I make my way between Arlington and Frisco, Texas to start another day. Today is Monday, December 22nd. And this is episode, I believe, 113. I could be wrong about that. I've had a weekend since the last episode, and sometimes I forget things. Uh, maybe a brain cell that uh, I abused during my uh, extraneous youth in the military finally gives it up the ghost, and I forget a thing or two. But I think it's episode 113. If not, um, I'll correct it in the show notes at the survivalpodcast.com. As always, this broadcast is one man's view. One man's opinion, you are welcome to differ with me. Um, unlike conventional talk radio, I do not have a way for you to call in and do so in a live format, not at this time. Something I'm looking at possibly bringing out in 2009 and starting to do some interviews and some things like that. For right now, you can give me feedback either by sending me email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You can post on my blog in the show notes of the show that you'd like to comment on and uh, either agree with or disagree with. Or you can post in the forum about any topic, either a show-related topic or something you just came up with on your own or would like more information about. And uh, either way, I should say any of those three ways, I do try to get back with you. The forum is a double-edged sword. One, if you post in the forum, somebody's going to talk to you. Uh, however, it may not be me. If you want, if you directly want a response from me, you may want to post in the forum and on the blog or in the forum and send me an email. Or at least send me an email about your post. Uh, because we are, you know, approaching, I think, over 20,000 posts in the forum. So I don't read every post that happens in the forum. All right, folks, so what is today's show going to be about? Today's show is going to be one. There's probably not going to be a whole lot of uh, disagreeing because we're not going to talk about politics. We're not going to talk about economy. We're not even going to talk about money. Uh, we're going to talk about gardening, and we're going to talk about gardening from an aspect of I'm going to give you 11 different crops, 11 different options to grow things that are highly overlooked by survivalist gardeners and, frankly, all North American gardeners. Uh, these are going to be items... I would bet that everybody listening to this show will probably hear at least one plant today that you've never even heard of before. Okay, I would bet that almost everybody that listens to this show today will hear at least one plant they've heard of, maybe even like, but didn't think you could grow in the United States, or particularly in like the you know. Zone 5, Zone 6, Zone 7 areas in the United States, maybe only in Southern California or Southern Florida. You find out that some of these things you can grow in extreme cold up into Canada that people sometimes for some reason see as tropical, maybe just because of how they're marketed. And uh, I will almost bet as well that there will be almost nobody on the, that listens to this show today that's grown every single one of these plants, or even six of them. If you've grown six of these plants during your life, please send me an email and let me know. 
because I'd like to pick your brain about what you've been doing because uh, you're thinking outside the box. Now, you may even wonder why I would do a show like this, right? Just purposely go out and try to find some stuff that uh, that most people don't grow. Well, it's because of a few things. One, I believe that a survivalist's greatest asset is creativity. Um, it's the mind. It's what can I do to overcome a situation or to preempt a situation. And, and if you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know that a lot of the things that I talk about are more designed for preemption than survival. And, and you know, that's simply is a, you know, a really easy analogy is how do you survive being washed down a raging river? Don't fall in a raging river. Right? If you don't fall in it, then you don't have to go through the survival aspect of it. Now, it might be good to know to keep your feet together and point it downstream and you know look for a place that you can pull yourself out and, and, and all that good stuff, because sooner or later you may end up in that raging river. But it doesn't mean that the best course of action is to not do everything possible to avoid it in the first place. Right? So when I look at the economy, when I look at politics, and I say, you know, here's an issue that we have to worry about in politics. Here's an issue that we have to worry about in the economy. It's, it's a hope that getting that message out there will do something to preempt it, uh, or at least slow it down, or at least make people aware of it so they're prepared for it when it occurs. With that spirit in mind, I thought, well, how many things could go wrong that if your plan to provide for yourself is potatoes, uh, tomatoes, peppers, lettuce, right? And that, you know, your typical North American, onions, garlic, maybe some okra, and your typical North American garden could be preempted by bringing in things that had higher amounts of vitamin C, would grow in extreme temperatures either in the high temperatures of the year or the low temperatures of the year, or would be something that would produce food for you for a very long time. I'm going to give you a plant today that will produce food for you for an average of 25-year life cycle that you can you can, uh, you can can propagate by taking cuttings off it and making new plants. All right? It's 25 years. I'm going to give you another plant that has historically produced food for people for up to and over 100 years. All right, so one plant, 100 years of production. Now, it might take two to five years to get that plant to start producing, but... You know, this is it's also a plant that can be grown in fairly temperate climates or in a desert. All right? So let's get on with that. Let's just think about this as we go through this. How many problems can we solve as gardeners with some of these plants? Problems like, you know, it's really hard to grow wheat on a small scale or rye on a small scale, right? Grains typically are grown in very large fields. And then if you do grow wheat, you have the whole threshing, and it's a real pain in the ass, honestly. If you've never, you know, dealt with raw wheat, I mean, I mean raw on the stock, where you have to go through the entire process, you may not have an appreciation of how much work it really is to get wheat into a form that you can use. Now, you can certainly buy it already threshed and everything, where it's just hard wheat, stores great, it's a good survival provision, but growing it yourself, yeah, that's a different story altogether. So I wanted to find a grain crop that you could grow in most of North America that would provide the the, uh, the the staple capability to make some sort of a bread that wasn't corn because we already know about corn and that corn is so a lot of people are allergic to corn so an alternative for them and corn's not that nutrient rich and honestly neither is wheat or barley I wanted something that was very nutrient rich so I looked at things like Kiona 
And uh, that's a good one, too. And I could probably add that to the list because most people here have probably never grown or or, or uh, even eaten Kiona. I even looked at millet, which is what a lot of people feed to birds. And uh, it's good for feeding to birds. It's good for feeding to chickens. But what I found when I looked through all the ancient grains that people used to survive on, I wanted to find something, if I could, that was native to the Americas, and I found something called amaranth. Now, amaranth is what I would call a lost grain. People have forgotten about it. And it was to the Incas, the Aztecs, all of the American Indians from Mexico, even in the southern United States, down through Central America and into many parts of South America, it was to those people what wheat and barley were to Europeans. Uh, It was used constantly every day. Now, amaranth has a lot going for it. In fact, it's a lot more versatile and a lot more useful, in my opinion, than wheat or barley. Uh, Number one, the the seeds of amaranth are a lot like birdseed honestly in their look and feel and they're a lot easier to you know dry out and and get separated from their their mother plant and get into a form uh, that can actually be ground or just cooked in a parch like type arrangement or mixed in with flour and maybe cooked into like muffins or cakes or something like that all right so it's a lot easier to get it to a point where you can use it it is extremely high in nutrients uh, just about every nutrient and vitamin you can think of as in amaranth at least to a degree uh, it makes you know barley or wheat look like crap in comparison from a nutritional profile so it's a lot more nutritious uh, if you wanted to make it even better when it's a tiny plant you can cut leaves off of it and you can use it kind of as a spinach or green substitute it can either be eaten fresh in salads or it can be eaten after steaming cooking or braising All right. even when the plant is large if you cut the new leaves as they grow which you can stand very easily because it's a very heavy stocky large plant you can continue to harvest leaves off of it that can be used as a green substitute it grows in the heat so people in the south that generally have hard times growing certain greens during the summer can grow this as a substitute for greens. Even if you don't let it mature, you can harvest it very young just as a green plant. Many of the uh, the plants themselves are uh, a red or uh, crimson color. Those that are, the flower stalks on them can be used to produce a dye that will make a red burgundy dye. Uh, which is what the Indians, uh, you know, I guess Native Americans is a better term for that, uh, used it for. Um, and last but not least, if you have the grain all nice and dried out, separated, and you don't want to turn it into flour, and you don't want to create kind of a porridge out of it, or you don't want to mix it with other grains, it mixes really great with rice, for instance, just steamed, uh, to enrich it and give it more nutrition, vitamins, flavor, and kind of a nutty taste. Um, you can just simply take it and lay it in a skillet the way that you would popcorn, and it will pop like mini popcorn, and you can snack on it. Now, that's a lot to get out of one plant. That's an awful lot to get out of one plant. It's native to North America, so it grows very well in our climates, even up into the Zone 7, Zone 6. If you plant it at the right time of year, you can grow it further north. Uh, you'll probably want it to uh, to provide some protection early in the year to get it in the ground as early as possible. Or just grow it during the warm part of the year and use it for the greens, uh, I'd say crimsons more in the north, uh, as a spinach substitute, a green substitute. It's not really been 
messed with a lot, I guess I would say. It's not really been um, refined by laboratories and things like that. It's very close to what it was or what it has always been, I guess is the way to put it. So it's very resistant to disease, and it's very resistant uh, to weeds and pests and other things that are native to our uh, side of the world. So it's not something that the Europeans brought with them. Uh, It's not resistant to some of the things that go on over here. It's a very large plant, uh, very thick stock. So once it becomes even somewhat mature, it's not prone to be blown over in heavy winds. If you have, you know, heavy windstorms in the summer like we do here in uh, Texas, they can be very damaging to things like wheat and barley and other grains are easily blown over. And the problem with grain, once it starts to develop a head, if it gets blown over and that head hits the ground, the head gets wet and then it starts to rot almost instantly. So it's it's immune to that. Uh, the, the large plants themselves can be chopped up and used for compost. It's kind of a wonder plant. When you really look at all that it's got going for it. High levels of vitamin and nutrients in the leaves can be used as a grain. It's got the grain. You can make flatbread out of it. You can blend it with other grains. Uh, You can make a popcorn type uh, uh, snack out of it. I don't know another plant in the world that can do this. You wonder why this plant fell out of vogue. Why we don't have amaranth in stores today. Why people aren't marketing it or selling it as, uh, as what it is, which is a pretty cool plant that does a lot of things. Well, one reason I believe is it just doesn't lend itself to cultivation very well. Amaranth flour is not going to store as well as barley or wheat flour, I guess. and It's gluten-free, so it doesn't make bread in that light, fluffy way that Americans have come to love. Um, but I wonder, when I think about it, if it wasn't something totally different. I watched a show called The Little Ice Age, The Big Chill, recently, I guess a couple months ago on Discovery, and I just watched it again. And they talked about how a lot of civilizations uh, really had it hard during the Little Ice Age. It was a 500-year period where it got very, very cold uh, in Europe, in uh, the North, North, North America, northern North American continent, uh, up into Greenland and all. It's part of why I don't believe in global warming, as we're taught about it, uh, because there were shepherds that had sheep up into the mountains of Greenland. Right, they were, you know, from the Viking uh, group uh, in Greenland before this thing happened. That's how warm it was. It's not that warm now, right? And then it's this little ice age hit, and it turned out that these shepherds, if they would, and, and these Viking guys, right, if they would have adopted some of the Inuit technology, which was state of the art at the time, which were these ivory harpoons, uh, they would have been able to hunt larger animals at sea in the winter. But they wouldn't do it because they looked down on the Inuit. Uh, the French took the Little Ice Age very, very hard because they wouldn't give up their cereal grains, their barleys, their wheats, etc., and adopt the potato, which much of Europe had already done because when the cold hit, the potato was under the ground and protected. When the rain and the long, cold springs came, the potato survived where the grain crops failed. But the French died in the millions because they would not accept the potato because they looked down upon it because it came from uh, South America and this, this lower form of people. And I wonder if amaranth just never really took off in North America because there was some 
some of that down the nose look at it. But anyway, it's something I encourage you to look at. Um, now let's go into some other stuff. There's a plant called Bell Isle Cress, and that's B-E-L-L-E-I-S-L-E Cress, C-R-E-S-S. It is a very fast-growing plant uh, from seed to harvest. You're looking at about 50 days. It's kind of a form of land cress, which is a form of, you know, kind of derivative of watercress. But unlike a lot of land cress and watercress, it's not as peppery or as spicy. Uh, so it's a lot more mild in flavor. So a lot more people will like it that maybe would not like other forms of cress. It can grow in very, very cold temperatures. In fact, this is not one to be trying to grow in the heat of summer in just about any part of North America. Uh, the middle of summer is going to be too hot for this plant. This is a plant to grow in fall, spring, and winter. All right, So you might want to put some out right at the end of summer, and you can probably keep your plants all through winter into spring. It will probably, unless you have snow cover it, it will probably be the, uh, the, the heat of summer that would kill your plant or make it a little bit too bitter and, and stringy uh, than the winter. I've seen this stuff. I'm growing it myself this year. I put some out in a flower pot um, in the sun. Uh, on a cold day, it was in the 30s, it did fine. It went overnight low with no protection down into the mid-20s. It looked a little bit angry with me for doing that to it, but by the time the sun hit it, it came back. Uh, I would say this stuff is as cold-resistant as like broccoli or uh, Brussels sprouts, maybe more so. High in vitamin C, uh, the, the Belle Isle comes from one of the islands that this stuff grows on where some sailors that got shipwrecked survived through the winter living mostly on, on this stuff. Uh, so again, high in vitamin C, other vitamins and nutrients. Uh, very good to eat, very easy to grow. And it, this is another thing that hasn't been through a big laboratory process. When you order uh, Belle Isle Crest Seeds, the seed you're looking at is probably not any different than if you went to Belle Isle itself and harvested some seeds from some wild plants. So it's basically a weed. It's a wild plant. and uh, But you can cultivate it and grow it at home. And it solves another one of those problems. How do I, how do I handle my winter? How, what can I grow in the winter? in areas where it gets really cold, where it's really too cold to grow a lot of other things. Well, this is one green that will be able to handle uh, the cold. And just about, and if you have a greenhouse, even if you're, you know, in a very cold climate, the Rocky Mountains or something like that, uh, inside a greenhouse, I just can't see this stuff not thriving. Uh, so there's another little plant for you to add to your, uh, your quiver, so to speak, uh, as a weapon against the different seasons and the different situations you may find yourself in. Now, the next one is a plant it's probably the most common plant out of all the vegetables. I have a couple fruits toward the end here that I'm going to give you. But out of the vegetables, this is probably the one that you can go to any grocery store and actually buy. But very few people seem to grow it. And I think it's just because people don't understand it or they've never tried it or they think maybe it's difficult to grow. And it's actually extremely easy to grow. And it's called fennel. And fennel looks kind of like a cross between like a fern and celery. Uh, not celery, a, a fern and, yeah, a fern and celery, yeah. It grows these big bulbs that look very celery-like, and when you slice them up, uh, they, they, you know, a person looking at it that didn't know any better might think it's celery, except the smell will be quite anise-like. If you're not familiar with anise, it's what they make black licorice with. It's not anywhere near as strong, though, as black licorice. It's a fainter taste in the plant itself. This is one that, you know, you're either going to love fennel or you're going to hate fennel. 
So, given that fennel's not very expensive, I would say go down to Kroger or Tom Thumb or someplace like that. Buy yourself some fennel. Look up a recipe for, for fennel, using fennel in it. Slice it up and try it. And if you like it, then grow it. The beautiful thing about fennel is it's a, it's a great plant. It will handle spring cool. It will handle fall cool. And it will grow right through the heat of summer as long as you give it a little bit of repast from the heat. And it can handle the heat quite well. It's a, it, it needs good sunlight, but if it gets too much hot sun on it, uh, it can scorch it in, in like a place where I live, like Dallas, Texas. So you want to give it maybe plant it between some of your plants to give it a little bit of uh, modeled part shade during the hottest part of the year. But it's very, very easy to grow. It requires very little attention. You simply just plant plant it, wait for it to get big enough to harvest and cut it off. And, and it is that easy. The seeds can be used as a spice. The seeds are anise seeds. Right? That's what they're called. So you can get a, a kind of a two for one out of it. But I just think it's something to look into. You don't see it in a lot of gardens. Uh, but honestly, the least among us from a green thumb standpoint can easily grow fennel. Uh, and it does take up a large part of the year, all but winter. So it gives you something you can you know, can succession plant, plant a few plants, wait a couple more weeks, plant a couple more plants, wait a couple more weeks, plant a couple more plants, and pretty much harvest it all through spring, summer, and fall. Uh, good nutritious plant, something a little bit different, and uh, in a barter situation, something other people are not highly likely to have. So there's another one. Now we've talked about some stuff that can handle, like Belle Isle Crest will really handle the cold. Let's talk about if you want to grow greens in the summer and you're not really keen on collards and mustard, uh, you're going to find that a lot of the really great greens just don't do very well. Uh, throughout the part of the year where it's the warmest. Uh, the you know Even in, in like Texas, you're talking like April, we might have some days that are in the 90s. May will, you know, some years May is a nice mild month. Some years May in Texas will have 100 degree days in May. By June and July, it's just baking the ground. And if you try to grow a lot of the lettuces, spinaches, forget about it. You just can't do it. But greens for salad are just a staple of the garden and again if you're not a big fan of mustard I'm not a huge fan of mustard or collard greens where do you go from here well one of the places you can go is to a plant called purslane okay Uh, purslane is a weed in many gardens but there are actually cultivated varieties that are really uh, good for salad greens and the thing about purslane is it absolutely loves the heat. Uh, I've grown it. I grew it here a little bit of it last year. In those 100-degree days, it actually grew faster. As long as you gave it some water and you want to water it at the roots, you don't want to get water on the uh, the leaves during the time when the sun's above the ground because uh, if you get water on plants when the sun's out, um, what will happen is that it will make little tiny magnifying glasses that will scorch and burn your plants. Uh, pulsing, I found that it does start to look a little bit impish in midday sometimes. And if you, if you water the root system a little bit, It'll come right back and it'll thrive on the heat. It's, I think it's just getting too dried out. Uh, though the plant is considered to be quite drought tolerant, uh, 
it is high in vitamin C, and it's one of the very few plants, uh, from a green standpoint, that are quick-growing, easy to grow, that are high in omega-3 fatty acids. So you have a source of fatty acids there uh, that are often deficient if you have to go into kind of a vegetarian-style life uh, due to the fact that either you've made a choice to do so, which I frankly have nothing against but will never do because I like meat, uh, or you're in a survival situation where meat is scarce. Uh, So it's a good source of that nutrient. So that's something you really want to look at. One of my favorite purslanes is uh, called golden purslane, and it's kind of a lemony yellow color. And it's even got a little bit of zesty citrus flavor to it. It's a wonderful addition to uh, summer salads. One thing about this, it's it's a problem solver in that you can grow it in the heat, which should lead you to understand that it probably won't, in fact, will not do well at all in the cold. It cannot handle cold. It cannot even handle a very light frost. By the time you're starting to see just a wisp of cold air into your fall, it's time to start growing something else. So, again, what I'm trying to do today is put more arrows in your quiver. And some arrows are intended for some targets and some arrows ever so others. So understand that this this arrow is about handling the real heat. Uh, staying in that mode, uh, a salad of nothing but purslane would be kind of boring. Uh, you could grow some, some varieties of lettuce will actually do pretty good in the summer, even if it's really hot, as long as you start the plants inside, because uh, they have a hard time germinating when it's too hot. Uh, but the, the best salad uh, lettuces to grow in the summertime in the hot part of the United States are red uh, and, and green salad bowl. Those two will do very well. Plant them, let's say, uh, so that they get the, uh, you want to plant them on the north side of a, of a crop that grows at least as tall as they do or a little bit taller. Uh, so you can add that in. But, you know, okay, now we got lettuce and pulsing. You know, what about some of these other great greens? And a lot of them, again, only grow in the, the fall and the winter and the spring. So what can we grow in the summer? Well, we can grow something called red Malabar spinach. And we can also grow a plant called red Aztec spinach. Now, these two are actually different plants, but I decided just to lump them together because they're pretty much what you say about one, you can say about the other. They bring a nice red crimson color uh, into your salads. So they have that attractive uh, appearance to them. High in vitamin A, high high in vitamin C, uh, and a lot of other nutrients and vitamins. Handle the heat just fine. Uh, They don't get bitter uh, when when it gets warm out. And a lot of the greens that will even grow in the summer, the problem is they start to get very bitter uh, in the summertime. So these two spinach substitutes, uh, which can be used as exactly that, anything you would do with spinach, you can do with either one of these. Uh, You can go ahead and do with either one of these plants. And again, the red Malabar spinach and red Aztec spinach. Uh, There's also a plant called New Zealand mountain spinach. All of these plants uh, are just exceptional for growing when it's too hot to grow conventional spinach. You could even grow all three of them and and contribute them to a salad in combination. Uh, And you'd have a quite interesting salad if it was made up of uh, some of the summer lettuce with some purslane uh, and some of these uh, various uh, red spinach substitutes. Continuing from there, though, we can also go into another red plant that's called orach. Now, orach is another one of these plants that I like to refer to as a forgotten or lost plant. It's another red kind of salad green spinach type substitute. This stuff, you can grow it 
in South Florida. I don't care how hot it gets, as long as you give it some water and some good fertile soil and a little bit of relief from the hottest part of the sun, planting it around some other plants, so at least it gets some shade at some part of the day, uh, it will grow. It will grow uh, small, and you can cut it early and use it for uh, salad greens. You can let it grow large, and you can saute it uh, or use it for cooked greens. It's an exceptional plant. Again, very high in a lot of different uh, uh, nutrients, vitamins, minerals, and things like that. And again, it's called Orach, O-R-A-C-H, if you want to look it up online. There's quite a few sources of seeds for it. This is another one, though. I, I've never been to the store and, and, and saw a bundle of Orach. I've seen it in some farmer's markets, but I've never seen it at Kroger's or Winn-Dixie or uh, Albertsons or any of the stores like that. And then if we wanted to put a little bit of bitterness and you know peppery spice into our uh, summer salad, and we wanted something that would continue to grow when it's pretty warm out, uh, there is a plant called arugula. And now the beauty of arugula is it will grow in fairly warm temperatures. If it gets too warm, it will start to get really bitter. But unlike a lot of plants that do well in you know moderate to, to somewhat excessive warmth, it will handle cold. I've got arugula growing in my greenhouse right now. When you grow arugula this time of year, it's a lot sweeter. Um, it's a lot less bitter. When you grow it in the summer, you get more bitterness, but it's actually a pleasant bitterness that as long as you're not trying to eat a bowl of it, uh, it goes very well mixed into a salad because it gives a balance to the sweetness of the other vegetables. Uh, it grows very, very fast, so fast that it's also referred to as rocket salad by some people. Uh, and there are the one variety of arugula when you buy those little spring salad mixes and you see those things that look like dandelion leaves. Those are not actually dandelion leaves. There's a variety of arugula that actually is what that little leaf is. So if you're familiar with the taste, the texture, the flavor of those leaves, that's what you can grow in your own backyard simply by growing arugula. Uh, it's a plant that you can do a cut and come again type situation where you plant it, let it grow up to about six inches high, cut it a couple inches from the ground, throw it in your salad, and it will continue to grow back. You usually get two to three harvests off of it. So those are all the vegetables that I have to talk about today. I now have... Uh, some other, we'll call them unusuals, uh, to discuss with you. And some of these are the ones that I said that instead of like everything I just talked about, you can get a harvest from in 50 to 60 days if you're going to do just the greens, right? Uh, fennel, a little bit longer because you want the bulbs, but even amaranth, which takes, you know, 100 days to grow into that big giant stalk plant with the grain on top of it. If you just want the, the greens from it, you can plant it and harvest it in 30 to 45 days. Now, what I'm going to talk to you about next, these things are going to take maybe years to fully establish. But once you do, they'll produce a very large amount of food with a very little amount of care. And I, I promise you just about that each one of them will be something you, you will have probably heard of, but went, well, I can't grow that here. The first one is the plant that has made New Zealand famous, the kiwi fruit. Now, for some reason in America, we have this vision in our head that the kiwi is a tropical fruit. Now, if you've ever been to New Zealand or watched a movie like, um, what was the big movie that was popular in a book when I was a kid? Uh, Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That was all shot in New England. Big, huge, huge, giant mountains and green and lush. But 
you know, snow-capped mountains, and New Zealand is actually, you know, as far north or far south as much of the United States is north. It's a fairly temperate climate, yet they grow kiwis like crazy down there. And there's actually two varieties of kiwis. There's a kiwi that you might be very familiar with. It's in the store. It looks almost like a little hairy potato. And then there's another kiwi type that's a smooth skin, and they grow like about the size of a very, very large grape. Now, one of the things that might shy people away from growing kiwis is they seem like something that wouldn't store very well. The reality is if you pick them while they're still hard, they'll store a very long time in the refrigerator. And when you're ready to eat one, set it out on a warm shelf for a day or two, and it'll soften right up. So they actually have a very good storage life if you pick them a bit early. The smaller varieties don't have that hairy uh, coating on them, so they don't need to be peeled before you eat them. They're very high in vitamin C and other vitamins. Uh, So they are an augmentation to citrus fruits, uh, which is hard to grow in much of the United States. It's very difficult to grow a lot of the citrus fruits because they don't handle the cold. Now, how much cold can kiwis handle? Well, a lot of the hairy varieties can handle down to about 10 to 5 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, right? So fairly cold, way below freezing. Now, this is the plants. They They don't produce in the winter. They produce in the, you know, they grow through the spring and summer and they produce in the fall. They grow a lot like grapes, believe it or not. Kiwis don't come from a tree. They come from a vine. Alright. Now, the smaller varieties uh, that are more like a grape in size and texture, they can handle temperatures down to 25 degrees below zero. Not very tropical sounding. You want to mulch the roots good if you're in that kind of an extreme climate and things like that. Now, kiwis are generally not self-fertile, so you'll need a male plant uh, with your female plants. A male plant can generally uh, pollinate six to eight females. Now, a beautiful thing about kiwis for the survivalist is that you propagate them or make more of them by cutting them and uh, establishing roots on cuttings. So once you have a few of them growing, you can basically make as many of them as you desire. You can make hundreds of them if you want to. You may not want to make hundreds of them unless you plan on selling them, though, because an average vine will produce about 25 pounds of fruit. So four good female kiwi vines, after about two to five years of cultivation, will produce 100 pounds of kiwis. That's an awful lot of kiwi fruit from four vines, but it's what's possible. Um, So they are really an underutilized plant in the United States as far as I'm concerned. Very heavy producing. They're actually very, very easy to grow. They do take two to five years before they really start to produce. Uh, but they're much like a grape in, in that matter. With Once they start producing, they produce more than you can use. And I've actually had a fairly good kiwi wine. And I had a really good one time kiwi uh, mead blend. I guess you call that a piment or a melamol when you blend a honey wine with a fruit wine. Uh, I guess that's a melamol. And I uh, had a kiwi honey um, with cactus fruit mead, and that was absolutely fabulous. And uh, that may be something you want to consider if you're a winemaker or a beer maker or something like that, that it would be yet another thing that you could make into wine. 
Now, what's one more we can think of? Uh, there's a plant called a gooseberry. And a gooseberry is also highly overlooked. Most Americans think, if they know anything about gooseberries at all, they think of a gooseberry as a very tart, very sour fruit. There's actually quite a few very sweet varieties of gooseberries, yet the sweet varieties, even their skin is sour, so they have a nice sweet and sour blend. They make good sauces, they make good jellies, they make good things like that. They're not generally something you eat out of hand, uh, but they're very, very good for cooking. Uh, they'll grow very well in zones 3 through 8 in the United States. They self-pollinate, so you don't need to worry. If you want one gooseberry bush, you can have one gooseberry bush. Uh, and don't worry, it'll take care of itself. And now here's another one of these plants that produces by cuttings. So you can buy one gooseberry bush and basically create as many gooseberries as you wanted. Now, personally, I believe in diversity, so I'd buy at least two different plants so that if something happens to one of your gooseberry bushes, your other gooseberry bush will be able to uh, kind of pick up the slack in a bad year where maybe some type of a blight or a disease or something else hits you. And that is a point I wanted to make today, too, about what I'm doing this for is also for diversity. If you rely on just the common crops and something hits one of them heavily and you're limited in your diversity in not just species but even types. Like if you're going to grow tomatoes, I say grow multiple types. Earlys, lates, mid-seasons, same with peppers and what have you. So that if something hits one of your crops, the others survive. So you kind of take that to another level by maybe planting two or three varieties of kiwis, two or three varieties of gooseberries and you have these long-term crops with some redundancy in their production uh, so that you're not dealing with a situation where, again, if something strikes and does damage to one of your crops, you're completely left out in the cold. Now, um, the next one is something that I never thought about growing here in the United States. And then one day I was at a Lowe's uh, department store of all places, and I saw some fig trees. And I thought, figs? Dallas, Texas, where it freezes? Really? I mean, you know, doesn't fig trees die when they get frozen? Well, the, the truth is they will die when they're frozen. Uh, a lot of the winters here in Dallas, the fig tree would actually survive through. Uh, if they're given a little bit of protection, if you trim them so they don't get too large, maybe you can give them some overhead frost protection. Uh, but even if they die, as long as the roots don't freeze to too low of a temperature, they just come back the next year. They regrow. And as the root system gets bigger, that root Regrowth gets bigger and more vigorous, and it's and this is another plant that you're looking at two to five years before it starts to really produce figs for you, whether or not you have to cut it back and let it regrow every year, or if you live in a place where it's able to survive through. But this is the one that I said: once you get established, once you get it growing well, once you get it producing, fig trees live over a hundred years. A hundred years of production out of a single tree. So that's something that you really want to look at. Once you get them going well, figs also produce two crops a year. They'll usually produce a crop around August and then a second crop of figs around late fall. So you get two crops a year out of figs. Figs store well if they're dried. Uh, you can go out and buy dried figs and try them in advance to make sure you're going to like them before you, you know, maybe plan to stock up on that. But they're they're a great plant. Uh, you can again you know, either fresh or dried out, and uh, they're used in a lot of different Mediterranean and uh, uh, you know Middle Eastern cooking as well. 
So that's something really to look at. It does take about two to four years is the average fruiting. Now, they're not something you can grow everywhere. All right, You guys that are up in New England or Montana, um, unless there's a variety of fig that I don't know about, you're kind of out of it. You can't do it. But if you live in Zone 7 through 11, which is a fairly large piece of the United States, figs are an option for you and something you may want to consider. Now, I'm going to wrap up with one that's really kind of a curveball for you. I bet you never expected to hear this, but it's tea. And I mean tea like Lipton tea, right? The, the tea that they grow in China. The tea plant is another one of these things that in America we look at and go, well, they grow that in the tropics in India and China. They actually grow it in the mountains in India. They grow it in the mountains in China. They grow it in the mountains in Africa. And uh, it is hardy as an evergreen, which means it just stays there and just grows year after year after year as a bush. Up to zone 7 in the United States. It will handle some frost. Never knew until recently that tea would handle frost. I always thought tea is a very delicate plant. If you're north of zone 7 or in the northern portions of zone 7 or maybe up in the mountains like Ozarks uh, or the Washita Mountains in zone 7 where it gets colder than other parts of you know, zone 7 around you because of the elevation, get yourself a great big pot in a sunny window and bring your potted tea plant in during the coldest part of the year and put it back out when it's warm and you can grow tea for years. You can then pluck your small uh, green leaves to make green tea. You can pluck the very new growth to make white tea. You can dry it out to make black tea. So you can make three different kinds of tea. You can consume all of them either hot or chilled. I know a lot of people from the south are big into the sweet tea thing. You can grow your own. And one tea one or two tea bushes will produce a lot more tea than most people realize because they can be harvested a little bit on a daily basis and continue to produce regrowth. Uh, tea is good as a source of caffeine if you're in a survival mode. If we get a shit hits the fan mode and uh, you're kind of a coffee addict like I am and your uh, reserves of uh, ground coffee peter out uh, and chicory may taste like coffee but there's no caffeine in it, uh, you got tea as a source of caffeine. It's actually a better source of caffeine. It's a great digestion aid, um, and it has an awful lot going for it, so it's something else I consider, you know, ask you to consider taking a look at, possibly growing. So there you go, 11, and actually I threw a couple extra ones in there. So 11 or 12 items uh, for the North American garden that are either overlooked or just considered not acceptable or not actable to the North American garden that actually are, uh, how they solve problems, and some different things you can do with them. I thought this would be a good show to do uh, so close to Christmas time. I have a show planned for tomorrow that's kind of another curveball. It's not on gardening, but it's something cool. And then I have a special Christmas show planned for Christmas Eve. This week I didn't want to do anything on politics, anything on the economy, anything that's depressing or angering. This is a time of year to get around with your family and feel warm and special and communicate with each other and share with each other and give to each other. Give of yourself, give of your heart, give of your soul. That's what this year, this time of year is all about. Uh, so I'm trying to uh, be in that spirit right now myself, and I thought
thought that thinking outside of the agricultural box, so to speak, a lot of people, you're going to have a week off or a lot of the week off between Christmas and New Year's. Anyway, you're going to have a lot of time off coming up. It's cold outside. You're gathered around with family. Once everybody eats a big meal or something like that, generally people settle down and either watch football or whatever. Maybe this is a time that you prop open one of those seed catalogs, look at a few websites, start considering some of these other plants and start doing some planning, either for some stuff you can grow now in a sunny window or some of these new different plants that you can grow in this coming spring and uh, start to figure out where in your landscape you're going to put them. It's a pretty nice activity to do with a, uh, a cold beer or a warm cup of coffee in front of a fire. Either one of those is uh, quite enjoyable and I've been doing quite a bit of it lately. So I want to share a little bit of that with you. I thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas if you're going to miss my next two shows because you're going to be leaving early this week. Uh, know that we're with we're thinking about you here at the Survival Podcast. Uh, and this has been once again Jack Spirico helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent